Well, hello, everyone. It is great to be back. And today I get a chance to talk with somebody who I'm excited to talk to because we met in Tokyo and then he was telling me about his book. I picked up his book and I loved it. So, Lou, good morning to you over in Tokyo. Good morning. Here, Tokyo time. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Tommy. For having now, me on Lou, the podcast. we're going yeah. to talk about a whole bunch of different things. We're going to talk yeah. about your book. We're going to talk about your journey. We're going to talk about life lessons, all of that stuff. But before we do, for those who may not be familiar, talk about life in Tokyo. What does life in Tokyo right. mean to you? Because you've lived there for a number of years. Life in Tokyo is great. You know, it, Tokyo, I'm not sure, you know, um, just, you know, in case some of the listen, you know, listeners haven't been to Tokyo before, is the capital of Japan. Um, so Japan is, um, I would say, sizable country, 120 million people, yeah. and one out of three people in Japan lived around Tokyo. So Tokyo yeah. is a big capital city, has about 40 million people living around the Tokyo, Greater Tokyo area. Uh, it's cosmopolitan city, you know, comfortable life, very safe. Um, so ladies, you can walk around um, at night, you know, in, in pretty yep. much any neighborhood. There's no uh, certain neighborhood is more dangerous than the other. Uh, and uh, well, I, I mean, the I mean, the food uh, restaurant tech business, I, I would say Tokyo is the best foodie city in the world. Right. Oh, so even the 7-Eleven is really good, Lou. Exactly, exactly. So the number of Michelin restaurants, star restaurants in Tokyo is always number one. I don't know for how many years. It's always number one by, by, by default. Um, more than 300 Michelin star restaurants. And the restaurant number of restaurants in total, there are 160,000 restaurants just in this one city. It's the, the city has the most number of restaurants in the world. Yeah. Right. So. And, and with the dropping, like, you know, yen, yen uh, compared to U.S. dollars, you know, the most currencies in the world, Tokyo is becoming uh, rather reasonable and to some, to maybe Americans, maybe cheap. Yeah. Having a ramen, like the top of the world, ramen only costs less than $10. There's no ramen that costs more than $10 usually. Yeah. So with the quality and with the, with the price, with the, you know, it's it's a it's a very I love city Tokyo. Uh, that's where my wife was born, and for the foreseeable future, I think we're gonna we're gonna live in Tokyo. Yeah, very very yeah. good. Look, how long have you lived in Tokyo for? All right, um, this time uh, ten years is my good. ten. Years. Well, I, the reason I say this time is because I first came to, to Japan thirty one years ago in nineteen ninety three, and I, I I lived in Tokyo for. A, you know, or the greater Tokyo area for around 10 years and then left. So this is my second time. And altogether, I spent uh, 20 years uh, in Japan, in Tokyo. Yes. Yeah. And for those who are listening, Lou, I love what you're doing with your job, your startup and all that stuff. How would you describe what you do for a living and what your company does? Okay. Very simple. So as I said, Tokyo is amazing. It's a great, it's the best foodie city in the world. But for foreigners, they come to Japan they have no idea where these great restaurants are and the language is a barrier they know most people in the world they don't speak japanese and uh so uh what i'm doing is we're connecting the best restaurants in japan with uh, foreign tourists to help uh 
them find, reserve, order, and pay, yeah. Yeah. and have a great experience um, in Japan. So yeah, that's good. that's my that's my app. It's called Take Me. So take me to the best restaurants in Tokyo. In, in Tokyo, uh, not only Tokyo Limited, um, Kyoto, Osaka, you know, all around Japan. Yeah, so it's called yeah. Take Me. And one question, and I would love to dive into your book. Like when you t started Take Me, what made you decide to do it? Walk me through a process. Did you just sit there one day and say, wow, we need an app like this? Or did someone give you that idea? How did the idea start? Yeah. It, it's just very natural because since I have been to uh, a, a lot of, you know, living in China, U.S., so I have a lot of friends all around the world, right? And once I moved back to Tokyo uh, in 2014, I have friends coming to Tokyo all the time, like in, in the peak season, say Sakura season next month, right? You know, almost every week I have friends, you know, emailing me, texting me, saying, hey, Lou, I'm in Tokyo next week. Um, where should I eat? Where come on, come come and, and book this restaurant. Can you book some restaurant for us? And, you know, let's get together. So I'm almost like a host to all my global friends. And uh, and and they have a universal comment. When I, when I take them to these restaurants, when I book this restaurant, when I go with them, order the food, tell them the stories, right? And they're have a universal comment. It's like, Lou, without you, I would never able, I was, I'm never able to find this restaurant or I'll, I'll never get to know this detail of the craftsmanship, the food. I'll never have the same experience without your help. So I'm like, I'm not even a foodie compared to a lot of, you know, uh, the, the, the so-called foodies, they, they, they spend, you know, they, uh, one foodie I know is like, he eats at 500 restaurants per year. That means, more than one restaurant per day. I'm, I'm not yeah. even like that, right? So, and, and I look around on the, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, uh, uh, I would say internet or technology uh, entrepreneur for, you know, before I, I started, you know, take me, I started two, two companies before in China. So naturally I just looked for um, the other solutions, right? So there's pain point and there's solutions. So I found the reason is because there's no such service, you know, uh, this is like back in 10 years ago, eight or 10 years ago, when I first moved back to Japan, targeted, you know, the, the, the foreign tourists in Japan to do these things, to do, to give them a recommendation, to help them uh, reserve restaurants, solve the language, you know, uh, differences, and also have payment involved. So um, uh, you don't have to look around in Japan in the middle of the night of ATM machine to withdraw cash. Yeah. Because the big cash country, you know, 80% of the retail is done by cash pre-COVID. After COVID, it's 70%. So still 70% of the retail locations only accept cash, right? So all these problems, um, I just figure, oh, wow, I have this, you know, um, moment uh, uh, that there's so much pain, right, in terms of, you know, dining experience every day for every foreigners in Japan, and there's no such solution. Well, someone has to do it, and and yeah. uh, and because you know I have uh, my, my my tech background, I'm like okay, I can easily put up put together a app or a service to achieve those things. Good, very very good. Wow, thank you very much for sharing. Now it looks like a lot of times, even hearing you talk, you've lived in Tokyo multiple times, then you lived in China, then you lived in your. Talk a little bit about your journey, and which leads us into the book that you wrote today. Talk a little bit about all the different places that you've been, and in some sense, what made you move from one place to another to another? 
Sure, sure, sure. Which uh, I think, you know, if you give me five minutes to describe, this is going to be basically essentially the summary of the book is how I walk my, my life journey up into this point. So I was born in Beijing, China. Um, and, uh, the, you know, in, in an academic family, uh, life were, you know, stable for all of us, although we're not very, uh, rich in cash, but I, I would say I grew up in an environment that's really rich in, um, uh, knowledge and, and, and values. Um, the, the turning point for me to, uh, for my entire family and also I think for the country and also there's a very reason for me to uh, leave China and come to Japan was in 1989, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Tenement. Uh, there's a Tenement massacre. Um, uh, so the government and the army fired uh, to the students that, yeah. that they were protesting uh, in not only just in Tenement Square, but basically all Beijing. And because I'm a Beijinger, I was 17 at the time. I was not a college student, but because I was living in a college, you know, my, my grandfather, my father, you know, we were all living in the a big university campus. So naturally I was part of the university mm. uh, students and I was, uh, you know, dodging bullets, burning tents with uh, the college students. And uh, that event basically uh, changed my life, changed, I, I would say, my family life. And my family decided to leave China. Um, this is pre-internet, right? So, and nobody of my family member ever, uh, uh, I would say, except my grandpa, you know, he, he studied at Soviet Union, but after that, nobody had ever gone overseas to study. So it took me, uh, and also took my family uh, a couple of years to figure out how to get out of China. And eventually um, I came to Japan by myself in 1993. Oh, um, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. And my dad took a diplomat position. He went to India then as a diplomat and also uh, after that, Korea and, and US. So all my family members basically scattered around um, in the world. And actually we never lived together after 1989. Yeah. Um, and Luke, did you have siblings as well too? Yes, I have a younger sister. She's three years uh, younger than me. And she first went to India with my family. She mm -hmm. actually got, got in college in India. Uh, and then after that, she went to the UK by herself. And then after that, she, lived, uh, she lived in the UK for more than 20 years. Uh, also an entrepreneur. In, uh, she founded her own company in London. Um, so, yeah, that's our just, you know, a, a short story of our family. Now my parents are retired. They live, live in Beijing right now uh, peacefully. But, uh, but about on my side... So I came to Japan uh, when I was 20. Um, the living, uh, uh, I would say the income level back then, uh, the average, I would say GDP per capita uh, of China is like about 130th of now, right? So uh, so I in the book, I described uh, all my family members have to borrow money to gather all, all the savings. It's, that's, that's still not enough just to pay uh, one uh, semester, one terms of my tuition in the language school. Wow. That was yeah, about yeah. roughly $4,000. So $4,000 was like, um, you know, like four times of my yeah. family, like my, grandma, my grandpa's family's entire savings. So we have to borrow a lot of money uh, just to send me here to Japan to to study for one one quarter and, and uh, with a one-way ticket uh, to Japan. So I have to figure it out. Uh, it's a survival game, right? So I landed in yeah. Tokyo yeah. Uh, with one suitcase. 
with with a bare minimum of Japanese language, which I learned in a couple of months before I came to Japan. And that was it. That was like game start. <laughs> I had to, so I had a within a week, I, I basically found myself washing dishes in a restaurant um, and uh, learning language, you know, in the language school in the morning. So working eight hours a day uh, in a restaurant and spending minimum. So that was, uh, you know, to the 20 year old, you know, me, I think that was that was really, really the the most uh, I was the most difficult experience in my life. Yeah. So compared to any of the difficulties, you know, I know startups uh, or, you know, a lot of difficulties yeah. right now. But uh, but I would say uh, nothing compared to that one year of the experience when I, when I just got in Tokyo. Right. The loneliness, the physical difficulty. Go ahead. And no, no, that was what I was just going to ask you. For you, what part was it? Was it the loneliness? Was it the physical capability, the emotional toll? What yes. was the hardest for you? Yes, I, I would say by far the the loneliness. You know, the the physical difficulty I described in the book is like how much I I I I, um, I don't eat, right? So I really yeah. need to save money. I only eat one once per day, and I was so skinny. Uh, uh, you know, I cut my fingers during, you know, uh, you know, the, in the kitchen. So there are a lot of physical difficulties, but on top of um, the physical difficulty, I think the hardest thing was the loneliness, the mental. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. This is pre-internet again, pre-internet era, and I have no money to call international phone calls. So you know, I was only by myself. I had no friends in a foreign country. I don't speak the language. So um, the uh, uh, third month I, after I arrived in Japan, which my Japanese still wasn't that great, and also I didn't make any friends, the school, the language school, got into one month uh, summer holiday. So for the entire month, I didn't speak a word to anyone. Mm. So I, I'm not sure if anyone had this experience. So spending one month not talking for a single word. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think at the end of that one month, that I, I, I kind of felt like I was crazy. I was going crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I felt I was I was a, a transparent person. I, I wasn't even sure if I exist or not. Right. So uh, I, 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 I go on the streets. I purposely like bumping the people to make sure when they look at me, oh, it's like, oh, someone look at me. Um, and if someone has some reaction about me. Um, wow. Yeah. 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 So, you know, because I, you know, I, 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 li I, I lived in this really tiny apartment um and i wake up study go to wash dishes and come back you know that cycle and and during the whole process and because i couldn't people also have the impression that i, I don't speak the language so i just don't speak at all and yeah. and also i was only 20 years old right i was thinking about my family yeah. Yeah. in china i don't want to disappoint them you know it's just a a, a really really lonely experience and i started yeah. talking to the mirror to myself it's like <laughs> if i don't talk I, then I, I i literally just go, go go crazy so that's yeah yeah lou as you look back here you are a little bit older now uh and <laughs> all these decades have passed yes how 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 did it change you how did it become you look back at those they're tough memories they really changed you how did that change you as a person Very good question. Um, I think um, it, well, like people said, it builds character, right? It built a lot of endurance, uh, perseverance, 
Um, and um, yeah, it gave me uh, what doesn't, you know, what didn't kill me, um, made me stronger. Uh, but it also reflect um, a lot of the values and the format, you know, like when I grew up in China, when I lived with my parents and grandparents as a elementary student, as a teenager, so all these values kind of condensed and that becomes stronger during my time when I was in Japan alone by myself. So I was living off these values, I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. So um, that I don't, you know, I was, well, there are possibilities, there are opportunities. Um, to do these bad things, right? So, so they're gangsters in Japan. They're, you know, other ways to make money much quicker and easier. And I didn't choose the easier and quicker path to make money. I, I, I think a lot of the facing a lot of choices ahead of me had a very um, clear goal ahead of me, and also had a very uh, consistent um, decision making process that I, I not I don't just always make the easy choices I make hard choices uh, yeah. I go I purposely went out to the hard paths um, that led to me today yeah yeah, yeah. And to, to great Louis reminds me my parents immigrated to the U.S. in 1972 I was born in 1977 and the area that we lived in was more mostly a Caucasian area and yes. uh, my mom had left communist China was just becoming communist all of that stuff and uh, she was separated from her family and she came from a wealthy family and all of it was gone. And we just didn't have any money for the longest time. Lou, we used yeah. to eat ramen noodles, hot dog and lettuce as our meal. And yeah. I always wonder why or we did they just like it that much until I realized we just had no money. But uh, you were picked on by a lot of the Caucasian students because I was Chinese. I was the only Chinese in my neighborhood. So mm -hmm. I was different. So they just picked on you. But more yeah. so, I think a lot of times I also dealt with my mom's anger, my parents' anger, most yeah. of my mom, who, because of all the stuff that happened to her, I don't think ever really got over it. And it, we we took the brunt of it as kids. Yes, I understand. I can completely understand. So my on my wife's side, uh, I think her experience is, uh, is closer, closer to you. So so I'm the first generation immigrant. Yeah. Right? And she is the secondary. So her parents moved from China to Japan, and she was born in Japan, but yeah, in, the Chinese yeah. family, in the Chinese family. So very much like you, um, and and her, hearing her stories, that's why we kind of immediately connect uh, connected when we met, because um, you know we all have this kind of identity crisis, yeah, yeah. Uh, have all the struggles, right? And uh, yes, definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. After Japan, then from that point on, where did you go? The U.S. or Singapore? Uh, U.S. U.S. So after living in Japan for 10 years, so I did, you know, fast, you know, forward. I, I graduated from college. I was fortunate I got in Goldman Sachs in Japan. So life was, became dramatically different. But I still have this goal to go to the U.S. to, uh, to, to study in the U.S. Right. So very my, impressive that yeah, you got all the way. Yeah, I think this is all come from my my grandfather, right? He yeah, he, he's a PhD himself. He's like, well, you know, it's like you're smart. It's like at least you should get a master. So it's like never satisfied with a, just a college degree. He's always encouraging me, even like you know when he write me letters from China. He always had this newspaper clips about you know the the MBA rankings and blah blah blah. So um, so I always have this in mind that I got to go to the business school. And 
of course, in Goldman Sachs, everybody around me had an MBA. So it's very natural for me to just go to go get an MBA in the U.S. George, let me stop you. I mean, not George, uh, Lou, let me stop you right there. I actually had my family had a, a relative by the name of George. That's why I just called you George from Hawaii. Yes. Older, older gentleman. He used to clip to no, newspaper articles of college rankings and bicycles yes. and sent it to my mom for us. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's uh, so. So, I, yeah, obviously, it's, it's a very, I would say, natural um, path for me. Uh, but yeah, so I went to the US uh, for two years for, well, of course, when I was in Goldman, I was on and off, you know, in, in, in New York, uh, Wall Street for about eight months. But, uh, but, you know, in the Silicon Valley, you know, in the middle of Silicon Valley, Stanford Business School really, I would say, changed me uh, or, or, or brought the natural me out, right? So the, 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 I would say the calling for freedom, right? The calling for creativity. Um, I always felt, I, I could remember this when I was, even when I was in high school, I had no idea what work is, uh, what the society is. I always had this feeling, uh, the un, unknown confidence that I was going to start a company by myself. Yeah. I don't know why. And so I felt that even though, you know, I was in finance, in Wall Street, I felt living like a king. But once I'm, I'm in the Silicon Valley and around the, you know, students in Stanford, I just felt, wow, this is home for me. Yeah. You know, I yeah, knew yeah. I belong. Yeah. My heart belongs to uh, entrepreneurship and, and co-creation. And now, you know, after, you know, all this you know, in, in the book I wrote that I now understand is it, it's, it's not just me making the decision. It's not me, me, me. It's actually um, God. It's, yeah. you know, and, and, and some and give this purpose to me. Yes, go ahead. And he, he's leading you on this journey, right? I mean, a lot yes. of times look at David does a lot of times he had to spend some time as a shepherd boy, his father, yes. when Samuel called him and said to Jesse, do you have any other sons? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have a younger one, uh, David. <laughs> and so he brings him in and David had to learn to take care of the sheep. It was monotonous. It was boring. He was by himself, but boy, did God use that time to help him learn how to protect the sheep, learn how to fight lions and bears and all that stuff. So he ends up fighting Goliath. And then from that point, it gets into conflict with Saul. And he ends up by himself for the cave of Adullam. We never know the journey that he has. And for you is he's brought you from place to place to place, learning how to work washing dishes. But then at the same time, leaving your homeland, being separated from your family, then finding success in Wall Street, realizing, wait, that's not it. But feeling <laughs> like you're at home at Stanford. Yes. So yeah, so naturally after Stanford is like, hey, I gotta, I gotta do some startup, you know, but yeah. uh, but I have no idea what I'm gonna do. But the first thing I thought, you know, since I left China for 12 years, and China started looking promising, right? This this is after 2003 SARS, if you remember, uh, yeah. SARS, very similar to COVID, right? So preventing people from going out, that's where the internet started become practical, right? So in 2003, two of the Nowadays, biggest internet companies uh, started in 2003, Alibaba yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, and JD. JD. So these are the two biggest uh, uh, e-commerce platforms in China, all started in 2003 because even using 56K dial-up modems, people have to go online to buy things because they cannot go out. So that Correct. actually Correct. kickstarted the internet or the e-commerce 
uh, boom. And, and I graduated in 2004. So it's like, okay, things are starting in China. And a lot of, a lot of the, uh, I was, when people say Chinese returnees, uh, right, return from US or somewhere, mostly US, you know, from Silicon Valley or Wall Street, back to China, copy the business models that, you know, from, from the US to yeah. China. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, because China was behind, right? Uh, so that was the era where I saw, wow, I could be doing something similar, right? Because I experienced in, you know, you know, the finance world in Japan and also entrepreneurial technology world in Silicon Valley, Stanford, I could, you know, do something in China. And, um, and also, uh, one very big, uh, I would say, uh, drive for me, a calling for me, even just to go to Stanford, I just want to, you know, just went back a little bit. Um, I all have had this calling that I, I need to do something for the unprivileged people. You know, God. so even when I was a banker, I was a private banker at Goldman Sachs, serving the most, the wealthiest tycoons in Japan, right? So they, they are my clients. But I always resonate with the poor people because of reminding where I came from, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I got really shocked, uh, moved by this um, uh, Mohammed Yunus, who started Grameen Bank, uh, a P2P lending business model to really help um, the poor people in the poverty, right? In the in Bangladesh, to so fifty dollar could change someone's life. So that was really really. Uh, uh, shocking to me so that uh watching that documentary i was like wow I, I what i'm doing i'm just only here making rich people richer i don't feel that's a purpose of my life i, I want to make an impact to the to the common people to the broad especially the underprivileged people so i think that's very the very strong reason why i went to stanford because stanford was very famous for social entrepreneurship mm. and i learned a lot of i did a lot of projects there so and just feel like okay either, although U.S. is very comfortable. I could stay in, in, the, in the Bay Area. Most of my classmates did. I could go back to Japan, but I chose to go back to China, um, not only because there, I see there are a lot of opportunities, but I knew is not going to be comfortable for me. It's, the key is going out of comfort zone yeah. Um, yeah. To, um, to make a difference. right? So make a difference is the slogan. It's a motto for Stanford. Uh, it's not making money. So this is very big. Yeah. It's like, like I remember the professor in Stanford is like, you smart, you, you're the smartest and brightest people. Uh, that's why you got in Stanford. But in choosing a career and choosing going out of school, try to make a difference, not to make money because making money for you guys are too easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You got aim for making a difference. Um, so that's, uh, that really, you know, kind of um, drive, drove me uh, to go back to China to make a difference. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Very good. And then during that period of time while you were in China, you you actually did start two companies, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> did it go well? Well, um, there's some ups and downs, right? I, I wouldn't say these are home runs. Um, so the two companies, um, but but it did learn something. And some of the investors made money. Some of the investors lost money. Um, I would say so. The first company was uh, follow the concept of. Um, mass customization, all right? Which is, you know, my slogan for the first company is like the shirt of Dell. So I was making shirts, customized oh. shirts online. It, it, it. And, and, and the shirts are customized. Mm. Each person's size and design. But it, it, the idea is 
manufacturer, so the front end user facing is customization. Everybody can customize their own shirt. And the back end is in China, leveraging China's manufacturing capability to mass produce these customized shirts and yeah. start to grow up using uh, uh, over internet. So that was the first, so my, uh, the one liner of the, my first companies, the company name is called Beyond Tailors. Right. Got so it. Tailor can only do small scale customization, but Dell, yeah. I what did was mass produce, mass production of customized um, products. So it's like, okay, if mass customization can happen, fashion should be um, the best area because everybody looks different. Everybody's size is different. Everybody's um, uh, personality is different. We should make yeah. customized fashion for each individual instead of selling uh, off the rack. Uh, everybody wears the same clothes, right? Got it. Got so, it. Got it. Got it. Wow, very good. So the concept was 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 good, but uh, even today, nobody can do it. Uh, after so that was 20, 2020, uh, 2000, sorry, two thousand five, two thousand six, when I started it. So almost twenty years passed. Um, there are a lot of reasons I won't go too long, but uh, basically, the supply chain is very hard to achieve. Every single garment right now in the world is made by human hands. Uh, not by machine. Uh, so it's very hard to be uh, like Dell, right? It's like assembling parts into a computer. Anyway, so after one and a half years into that business, I quickly realized the bottlenecks to scale up, to be yeah. um, to be scalable. And But I also encountered another business opportunity, which is uh, uh, at the same time, <clears throat> I would say, on the manufacturing side, there are a lot of bottlenecks to do that. Also on the demand side, I realized most people don't need a customized shirt. They're happy with the off the shelf, off the rack mm. shirt or anything, right? And uh, so it's a, it's a very niche market. And, and this uh, demand is not gonna change. I'm not gonna change people's mind. And intrinsically, uh, people just don't need it, right? Uh, so I'm like, okay, why don't I just go for a, main market like mass market product uh which i also learned uh, a very successful company in the us called victoria's secret yeah uh, <laughs> and i figure oh it's it's a symbol right of sexiness and the business model is a very success or successful right both um the mail order online and also the you know physical shop and the combination is very interesting um, so I looked at the category of uh, lingerie or blah, blah in China. I realized there are 3,000 lingerie, I would say, underwear factories in China, but there's no single brand that's uh, achieved the same level as Victoria's Secret achieved in the U.S. Uh-huh. Um, because um, China was uh, still, uh, back then, uh, the biggest manufacturing country in the world so 80 yeah, percent yeah, of the yeah. bras sold in the world were manufactured in china mm, yeah, uh, yeah 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 like apple computer right so the famous line that written on and most of the apple like if, if you put your pick your, pick your uh, macbook it says design in california assembled in china right <laughs> got it and of course the brand is from the us so it's like wow and then i was very into branding i was like okay china is already mature in terms of manufacturing but was lacking in china's branding yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to create a consumer brand. And, um, and what is branding? Right. And, and branding is basically identity. Branding, brand is a name. Name is identity. Right. So I was like, 
I'm going to create a brand that resonate with Chinese female females. All right. So that's why I created this brand, um, called Lamu is L A M I U it's, 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 um, uh, it gives the people a sense of, you know, kind of foreign, um, taste. It's uh, also sort of Japanese sounds Japanese sometimes sounds French. Uh, but the meaning of this uh, brand is, is really is that um, la is like a, a music, right? It's do, re, mi, fa, so, la, is a la, is music. And mu is muses, right? So it's like we, every female, every single, well, man, female, um, uh, same. We all have um, our inner beauty, like the muses. They have a lot of talents inside of us, like the purpose of God that created us. We have, we have a lot of purpose, a lot of talents that's sleeping inside of us we don't even know yeah. and and it's our job our lemieux to use this brand to use their product to use our company to wake up the sleeping talents inside of you so you find your true self that's unique that's different from others that only exists in you and you leave out your created talent to be the best of you so that's basically the brand concept and story. And our slogan is that sexiness is my attitude. So we changed the, <clears throat> the concept of, uh, uh, I would say changed. So we, we made the concept of sexiness much deeper. So Victoria's Secret's sexiness, it's very obvious. It's physical sexiness, right? It's a sexy symbol of, of America. Um, but that's a little bit too much for Asian culture, for Chinese mm. culture. Right. And, and also we realized we want this, the, it, what's really sexy is the way you live is how, how you wake up your, your talents, you're chasing your dreams, you're making a difference, right? It's what's really sexy. We want, we bring down to the, to the, to the mental level, um, that everybody can be sexy. So our, our, our advertising, our, our, our um, design is like the different body shape, different, you know, and everybody can be sexy. Very much like yeah. the Apple Air um, yeah. iPods uh, commercials. Like life is colorful, you know, people are very different, but they all own the same um, um, iPods. So iPods make them cool and you can be different and being different is cool. And the, what's cool, what's sexy is not the shape of your body, is your attitude. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah, was yeah. The, that was the brand I created, and and overnight it became a phenomenon in China. Um, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's I would say yeah. So again, choosing the hard path, right? Because creating a product is much easier, but creating a brand is very very hard. But ultimately, is is the there's resonation, is the <laughs> identity, the association with this brand really made us uh, yeah. stand out um, from other other brands. Now, Lou, is it still around? Is the brand still there? All right. It's it's still there. But uh, the uh, the company, so, um, the, you know, I, among other shareholders, decided to sell the business after six years in in, uh, in establishment. And now it's owned by a Chinese company. God. Yeah, it it looks very different. I would say it's a bit sad uh, to see, you know, uh, it becomes different, you know, because, you know, as, as a founder, um, I feel like I infuse a soul into this brand, right? But once the, the brand is sold, um, the visual, you know, we've called the visual merchandising, the merchandising, you know, started, you know, 
changing, right? Because because uh, of course the new owner has a different uh, thought and infuse a different yeah, soul. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, good, good, good. Hey, and even going back to your book as well too. You go through all these different journeys. We were yeah. just talking before we started the interview. You have a daughter nine years old. Yes. You want to write the book for her. Talk to me about that. Talk about my daughter. Talk about my family. Yeah, uh, about writing the book so that your daughter could read about your journey, understand your journey. Yes, yes. So um, I was thinking, you know, because my I talk a lot about my grandpa in the in my book. I also talk a lot about my dad. But um, even when I'm writing the book, I realize I don't really know a lot about them, right? So I. I heard stories about them. They told me their life stories, but I, I don't see the entirety of their life stories. I feel there's still a lot of, it's like pieces of puzzles. I can see a little bit of my, my grandpa, my, my, my father, um, of course, my mom. But for my, my grandpa, I know very little about him. I know only the period of time uh, when, I, when I overlap with him, but I don't even know he's my grandfather's father. Right, he never talked about it, so I just felt a lot of this is lost in in the um, across generations, right? Um, which I think you know what what is the family? What is the Don family about, right? Um, so I think that the, the importance is 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 the value. So um, what got passed through the families uh, generations in in the Don family is really our, our identity, really our, our value systems. I think that's very important. I need to let my uh, daughter know where I came from. It's a very different world. She cannot even imagine, you know, uh, this will be, you know, uh, to her a, a movie, right? Um, but I think that's important to just to document it, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, I think, um, that's if they, I think what would, you know, my motivation to, to write uh, about my life. And also yeah. even my, my father, my grandfather's life uh, a little bit of, so she can see where the entire family, why I become me, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the blue dome that she's looking at. Right. And even your faith journey. I mean, a lot of times you really didn't start talking about your faith journey to the end. Talk to me about the reason behind all that. Okay. Um, I, um, I really admire this um, person, uh, Kate Blanchard. Yeah. Yes, right? He, he, he's, um, I watched a lot of these videos. I haven't met him in person, but I, I read his books. I, I, I watched a lot of his videos. He talked a lot about servant leadership. I even w uh, I took a servant leadership training course. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with Carl, but basically the content is largely from uh, um, or inspired by Kate Blanchard. I saw his style is very flexible. So there are times when he talks to Christians, like 100% Christian believers, uh, throughout the content, he's quoting, you know, Bible verses. He's very, very specific about uh, Bible. But then at times when he talked to college students who are, you know, just like a mix maybe of a believer, not believer, he could do a one-hour speech without mentioning a word of God or, or, yeah. or, 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 or uh, Bible, quoting Bible verses. When I see this, it's like, and also in, in Japan, uh, there's only one percent of Christians, right? So yeah. I was thinking, I want to write a book so everybody can read it. They don't 
just turn it off. They don't don't like get turned off by hearing the word of God or Bible. They're just like, oh, don't, don't talk about Bible. Don't talk about. There are a lot of people. They have a lot of prejudice about Christianity from whatever experience they had in the past. So I don't want to turn them off initially from the beginning of the book. Um, so yeah, so that's why only toward the end of the book I start naturally bring the concept of God. Um, so that's that's one reason. And the other reason is this is a true. I didn't know God <laughs> when I was doing, you know, like describing, you know, the chapters when I grew up in China. I didn't know God. I, I grew up in a communist country. Uh, I came to Japan, you know, all this, you know, I went to uh, Goldman, I went to Stanford. All this time, I didn't know God. I thought I was doing this by myself. So I, I so this book is more like, I would say, a real-time documentary of how I lived my life back then, right? But only realize in the end, when I, also, of course, when I first met God, I, I got baptized, I became uh, a Christian in 2007. I would say the level of experience of God was very different from when I really suffered. Started, so I, I would say that the, the, the past chapter, that, that's why in the last chapter, my current company is largely about COVID, that I realized, I reflect my life, why all these terrible things happened to me? What did I do wrong? Why do I have to be a good person? Why do I have to work so hard? All this why, 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 why came to me. Then only in the past four years, I think I reached a new level of my understanding of God or his way. Yeah. That, uh, oh, for all these years, God is always there. It's just that I didn't realize he was there. I just didn't realize he led me through. Um, he gave me life. He walked me. Of course, I have free will. But in whichever decision he made, he was always walking along me um, and uh, guiding me and ultimately led me here, you know, to my current state of myself. So yeah, yeah. I think also it's, it's very natural. So I want to uh, give, give the readers a natural, uh, the natural development of myself. Like, that's why I think the subtitle is called A Journey from Personal Survival and Success, right, to Servant Leadership. So I would say I think I can see myself mature during the process of my life only in the last chapter, like most recently. Uh, even though I'm 51 years old, I, I still feel like I'm four years old yeah. in terms of living the, new, the, the latest state of, uh, of, of, of Christianity. Yeah. yeah. And Louis, yeah. it reminds me of a story. I was just studying Elijah and preaching on Elijah is he's in Cherith, uh, and God tells him, I want you to go to Zarephath. I want you to walk 100 miles to the home of Queen, uh, to the birthplace of Queen Jezebel. And there he encounters a woman, a widow, who's picking up sticks. And she says, hey, look, if you need any food, I have no food. I'm picking up sticks. I'm, I have a little oil. I have a little flour. I'm going to put some water, and I'm going to make some bread. And then my son and I are going to eat it and die. And Elijah is probably wondering, Lord, you made me walk a hundred miles. And for this, are you serious? God knows where you are. God knows where you need to go. And God knows what you need. And, but sometimes what we think we need is not what he 
says that we need, and we just have to be okay with it and continue to trust and follow him. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thank you for summarizing that. <laughs> but that is the hard part, though, right? I mean, Lou, is what does it I'm mean? Still to out. The... I'm still figuring out. <laughs> yeah, right? Lou, I say this is I have a friend, our friend Sharon, uh, right after Thanksgiving in the U.S., and this was a couple of years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer. All her life, Lou, she had wanted to retire early. And on the day she retired, she was diagnosed with stage four lung 